All right, guys, it's good to see everybody again. How cool is it that your, uh, your, your main preaching pastor can also lead, lead worship, right? That's pretty neat. I don't know, like, not a lot of churches can say that, but we can say that. Like, we got jack-of-all-trades up here. Pretty cool, pretty cool. All right, guys, so uh, if you're not already in Matthew 6, let's get there. Um, I, uh, I wanted Sammy to read the whole scripture just like we did last week. I wanted someone else besides me to read the scripture because you don't want to hear my voice probably for that long. Uh, I, I think I made a mistake the first week. I admitted this on Facebook, um, not, uh, not, not reading enough scripture, right? We, we talked about the scriptures, right? We did an overview of the scriptures, but we didn't, we didn't dive into them. Uh, and, I, and I really regretted that. I just, I wish that there was, I wish that there was more Bible reading. So I don't want to, I don't want to do that again. I want us to, to always read all of what we're going to preach on multiple times because God's word is good and it stands on its own and it's, 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 uh, it's um, perfect and, and it's, it's good for instruction and correction and, uh, and, and it provides for us his truth. So uh, this morning, let's, let's dive into Matthew 6, but as a way of a quick review, um, I, I just want to remind us where, where we are. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, right? We talked about context and how context is key. Jesus has been teaching us about life in the kingdom, right? What it means to be a kingdom dweller. Uh, Matthew 5 saw Jesus uh, look at the law, kind of reinterpret the law of the Old Testament and not make it easier, but make it harder, right? And, and he kind of lands in this space of he's, he's, uh, he's declaring war on false teaching and on dead religion of Israel, which, which is where it leads us into, into Matthew 6. Um, so Matthew 5 is, is kind of the bedrock, and Matthew 6 is built on top of it. I want to do something real quick, though. I want to talk about some, one thing Jesus is not doing in the Sermon on the Mount, and, and then one thing Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount. And the first thing that Jesus is doing, or is not doing, rather, is that he's not undermining our need for obedience, okay? He's not undermining the importance of obedience. For, for Jesus is saying that obedience is, is just as much about what's going on in your heart, right, and, and in your desires as it is about your outward behavior, um, so for Jesus, what we see in the scriptures, there's no, there's no dividing line. There's no delineation between inward and outward obedience. You won't have one if you don't have the other, right? And in, in Matthew 6, 1, the, the first verse that Sammy read for us, uh, it, it, Jesus says this. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven, Notice what Jesus says here. He doesn't say, don't practice righteousness, right? He says, don't practice righteousness to be seen by people, okay? So Jesus is saying, practicing righteousness, the deeds of righteousness are important in the kingdom, right? Once, once your trust is in Christ, once you're a kingdom dweller, doing righteousness is good. He says, just practice righteousness, but do it as worship. That's the freedom that Christ gives us, the freedom from the law to worship through obedience, that's what Jesus is not doing. He's not undermining the need for obedience. Jesus is pointing to his own future fulfillment of the righteous requirements of the law. Jesus is always doing this. The whole Bible is doing this, right? Jesus is pointing to his future fulfillment of the righteous requirements of the law. And this is the foundation of the gospel, folks. This is what we talk about here every Sunday. That the righteousness that is required of us to be in God's kingdom... It's not something we generate, but it's something that's supplied to us by grace through faith in the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. And that alone is salvation. That is salvation. There's nothing to add, nothing to contribute. It's just repentance and faith, right? So Jesus is pointing to that fulfillment. 
But here's the thing. This is the balance of what Jesus is trying to get at here, is that the heart of the kingdom dweller sees that Jesus has declared war on sin and self-righteousness, and so the kingdom dweller says, I must go to war too. That's how we balance the grace and the work. It's a response to Christ. Jesus, as the king, has freed his kingdom dwellers from the burden of the law so that we can then march boldly and unhindered into battle to fight for righteousness alongside of him. Righteousness in our own lives and in in the body of Christ. Christians are saved into a kingdom not to lounge around, right, and wait for Jesus to come back, but to fight, to fight for the gospel in other people's lives and to fight for righteousness in our own life. So that's where Jesus takes us uh, in Matthew 6. And so I want to give you the kind of the layout of where we're going to go this morning. Matthew 6, Jesus is going to do a few things. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to diagnose two major ailments of kingdom dwellers. He's going to diagnose two major ailments, right? There's a sickness medical theme. I didn't think about COVID when I was doing this, but it, it kind of makes sense. It, you know, it's on my mind. So he's going to diagnose two major ailments of kingdom dwellers. The first one is hypocrisy. And the second one is anxiety, Okay, And then he's going to describe symptoms of that sickness, right? And those are going to be three things, what we store, what you see, and what you serve, who you serve. And then finally, Jesus is going to prescribe the antidote, which is trust. He's going to tell us to trust that God will provide for your body and for your soul. So, let's dig in. We've got, we got some work to do and not much time to do it. The two major ailments, the first one of which Jesus highlights here for us is hypocrisy, all right? Jesus is going gonna, is gonna to teach us about hypocrisy, and he's going to do it using uh, three examples, really, of, of giving, praying, and fasting. And there's these, what I'm calling these three unrighteous illustrations, right? So Jesus is going to teach us about hypocrisy using these, these, uh, these, these situations where people are taking good godly disciplines, like, like uh, giving praying and fasting. Those are good things. Do not hear me say those are not good things this morning. That's not what Jesus is saying. Just like we said, he's not undermining the need for obedience. But he's going to show us situations where people take these good forms and these good functions and we pervert them for our own gain. That's hypocrisy, right? So the first one we're going to see is what we're going to call the finance flaunter, okay? I'm sorry for my alliteration if you don't like it, but this is just where we're at in life. This is what we're doing. All right, so verse 2, read with me. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus pictures this person who... uh, when they're about to go give a large sum of money, or maybe any money, in the temple, right? This is in the context of first century Judaism, right? So Jesus is picturing this person who hires someone to come in and, like, blow a horn when they're about to give some money at the temple. When you, when you think about it that way, it's, it's ridiculous, right? Like, the, it, it's almost like, like this person has hired a hype man. I don't know if you know what a hype man is. It's like in, in popular music, right, you have, like, the, the artist who's, like, doing the singing, like, singing the lyrics... And then sometimes, like at a concert, they'll have like this person who's like over here, who doesn't sing. They don't have lines in the song, but they're just like, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. And they have a microphone, but they're just like there to just like pump the, the main guy up. It's a hype man. Jesus is talking about the original hype man here, someone who hypes up this guy's giving. And we can immediately see how backwards that is, right? 
it's weird. It's like, why would you do that? And we, we can kind of sense that it's wrong, but maybe we don't understand why it's wrong. So I wanted to ask the question, because Jesus, is, he's probably describing something that really happened, right? Maybe someone had blown a horn, right? In the, but maybe he's even describing in, in, in the temple that there was like these, these big metal basins that, that they used to give money into, and it was like, it start, it's like a big jar at the bottom, and it comes up into like a, a narrow flute and opens up into what looked like a trumpet. And so it makes it easy to drop coins in, but you can't like reach your arm down and steal stuff from it. So it's like it's functional, but it also would probably make a lot of noise if you dumped a bunch of coins in there, right? Imagine dumping like gold in there, it's like, so that would be like sounding the trumpet. And maybe that's what Jesus is referencing. Either way, the point is that Jesus is saying people who are giving in order to draw attention to themselves. So I want to ask the question, why is it wrong as worshipers of God to call attention to ourselves when we're obedient? I just want to be critical, just ask a critical question of this. Why is that wrong? I'm doing the right thing, and I want people to see it. Well, Sinclair Ferguson, whose whose book I read on the Sermon on the Mount in preparation for this, and I highly recommend to, to anyone who's interested in studying this deeper, he says, because at that point, what you're doing is not a gift, it's a payment. I was like, it's not a gift, it's a payment. It's a quid pro quo, right? So, so what I'm doing when I'm giving a gift so that it draws attention to myself is that my desire is, is for the feeling of righteousness without the cost of obedience, which is the humility before God, right? So I have paid, essentially. I've given this money as a payment so that, the Lord, so that I, would, I would have what the Lord desires for me for myself. I'm stealing the Lord's glory from other people, Right? Giving back to God what he first gave me is meant to draw me near to him. But instead, this finance flaunter, the person who, who flaunts the fact that they're generous, is spitting in the face of God and settling for a cheap substitute of human praise. So it's a payment, right? But I don't want us to miss this. I feel like there might be a temptation here to be thinking like, well, I'm not wealthy or I, I would never do that. You're not off the hook. I, I'm on to you, okay, because I'm you. <laughs> so I'm on to you. Listen to this phrase. It says, there is as much wrong with seeking acclaim through your generosity as desiring anonymity with your stinginess. There's as much wrong with seeking acclaim through your generosity as desiring anonymity with your stinginess. It's just as bad to let people see you give a gift in an offering plate, that's our context, not the big horn. We should get those big horns, though, I mean, maybe if you, if you like them, but in the offering plate, it's just as bad to let people see you give a gift in the offering plate without them knowing that what you're giving is a stingy amount that doesn't represent the amount God has stewarded to you, right? It's the same thing. You, but here's the thing, church. So, so if that's you, if you're either one of these people, I don't want you to hear me saying, or Jesus saying, don't give if you think your motives might not be exactly right. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is give the boastful amount, right? Give the boastful amount, but be so quiet about it. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Be so quiet about it that you barely notice it yourself, right? That, that's the heart of the kingdom. That's what Jesus is getting at. The heart of the kingdom is that there's a conviction to fight for God's glory in all things, even, even in my own heart, that I myself would not even dare to try and share his glory with him. Right? That's the heart of the kingdom. And that's what, that's what hypocrisy steals away, right? We try and make what's God ours, right? We try and steal his goodness and make it look like us. So that's the first one. That's, that's, uh, that's the, the, the finance flaunter. The next one, uh, we have the prayer publicizer. 
My alliteration is pretty good, okay? All right. Verse 5, read with me. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. And truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So this prayer publicizer, right, this person who's proud of their prayers, more alliteration, a person who is, is this, Jesus picturing a person who shows like an Again, with the giving, it's an appropriate excitement for a good thing of God, right? Praying, that's good. Giving, that's good. But what we're doing is we're doing it for the hollow reward of acknowledgement from people, okay? I think we're catching on here. In, in, in context, prayer is a respected thing. It's even still kind of the case today, like if you're a prayerful per- person, if, if you kind of leave it vague, like, oh, I just like to pray, but you don't say to who, you might get some respect for that in the street, wherever, you know? Like, it's a respected thing. And so Jesus pictures someone who prays long, loquacious prayers publicly, but who's probably in reality, their prayers in real life are curt, short, or non-existent. And if that's you, if that's you, if you're you're one of the ones that's the first one to pray at the family event, but you don't pray on your own time, if you don't meet with God personally in prayer, you need to repent. That's hypocrisy. And so one of the desires... Is, is the one who desires, this is what Jesus is picturing, one who desires someone who wants to get public credit for prayer but has no regard for the product of prayer, right? Which is closeness to God, proximity to him. And so you may be thinking here, so let's back it up again. You may be thinking, whoa, I never pray with people, right? Out loud or in public. So I'm, I'm good. I'm in the clear. You are not because I'm on to you again. I got you, all right? Don't worry, I got something for you. Here's your phrase. Fear of praying publicly disregards the same truth as prayers that are prayed to display someone's false righteousness, right? It denies the truth that Jesus is Lord and not man, because if you are afraid of praying with and for and over people in a setting where someone might hear you, you're denying the truth that God is your ultimate authority. You're worried about what someone might think more than what God thinks. If you're afraid to lead others in prayer, to pray over coworkers or family members, or to insist uh, on prayer at meals or before meetings, even at work, right? Who are you trying to please? Who? Man might be your final authority and not God, if that is your fear. And I want, I want to pose that to you and let the Holy Spirit stir it around. So kingdom values, so just getting that, kingdom values are different than this, right? God is our authority. God is who we are concerned with. His opinion of me is the one that matters. And they should be reflected in our prayers. That, those kingdom values should be reflected in our prayers and the way we desire to pray. They should make their way into the most private, personal space of who you are, which is, which is your thinking, right? The deep, dark places of who you are that you yourself dare not even go, right? That's where kingdom values have to work their way down to, and that's shown in your prayers. Look at the model prayer that Jesus gives us. And guys, we could spend weeks just talking about this prayer, but we can't. We've got today. So we're going to look at this as the model prayer and just see the kingdom values in it, right? Maybe we'll get to come back to it in, in a few months when I get to preach again. But look at these kingdom values in, in this prayer, right? So this is, this, is, uh, this is the Lord's Prayer, right? It's probably the most famous prayer in the Bible, maybe Psalm 23 and this, all right? But let's, let's just go back and forth, just, just the first verse here, verse 9, where it says, 
our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That you would see and love God as our Father. We would see and love God as our Father and his glory as our delight. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That your Father's kingdom is our, is our home and his will and purpose are our first concern in this life and the next. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread that we should ask and trust God to give us exactly what we need today. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That God alone forgives and and we must experience his forgiveness to extend forgiveness, right? Reconciliation to God is the foundation to reconciliation with others. And verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That true righteousness is our, should be our desire and that God will protect us from the schemes of the evil one if we trust in him. Those are the kingdom values reflected in a kingdom prayer. It's a kingdom prayer because it reflects who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. And guess what? The cool thing about this is that every one of these values that's refre- reflected in this prayer, it leaves no doubt that God is primary, right? He is the primary goal and source of all things. There's no room for self-sufficiency or self-righteousness. Paul says, 1 Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? I think about that all the time. What do I have that I did not receive? God gives all good gifts. Everything he gives is, comes from him, and, it, and it's for me, from him, nothing else. Amen. The final person we want to look at here, the final example is of, of hypocrisy is in fasting, right? We're going to call this person uh, the hunger herald, right? Not like Harold, like the, like, the, like the name Harold, but like someone, it's a, it's a stretch, guys. I'm sorry, okay? I was, I was trying. I was, this is your, your comic relief is not in the actual words. It's just in my terrible naming sequence here. So, All right, the hunger herald. Let's read together, verse, uh, verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, Then your fasting may not be seen by others, but by the Father who is in secret, and the Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus pictures here a person who makes it apparent that they're practicing righteousness. And and that's the kind of a broad understanding, right? So it's I want to broaden that out and and take it just outside of the context of fasting, right? Uh, Because because we should be fasting, right? But but we do this in other ways too. So this, is, this is what Jesus is using an example of someone looking miserable and tired so that we know that they're fasting, right? We know that they're trying to be righteous. And, and, and when we do things like this, like this example of fasting, the, I think the desired response from, from a hypocritical heart is that we would hear or see or know about someone being like, wow, they're really devoted, so righteous, you know? Like that's the des- desired response. We probably won't get that. You, you might get something more along the lines of, he, he thinks he's so holy fasting all the time. Give me a break. But even that is acceptable, right? Because we just want the attention. I just want someone to notice my effort, right? And then we can just dismiss the offended person as like, you know, a heretic or a sinner or whatever. So I want to broaden this out, though, because there's other ways of publicly signaling your righteousness other than fasting, right? Because that's not a universally accepted form of righteousness in the world today. Right, so Jesus' context is, think about it, it's it's like a theocratic society, right? So social and public life is centered around a religion. 
So, so the ways to gain capital, like social capital, they all revolve around religion, but that's not really our context today. You know, we, we, live, we live in a secular society. It's, it's humanistic, secular, materialistic thinking, right? So it's, it's all centered around the self and the person, the individual. So our ways of gaining social capital are a little bit different from first century Palestine. So this is, this was, I was trying to think through this. What's one example? What's kind of something you could boil it down to? What is Jesus talking about here? I think chief among this desire to like show your self-righteousness is this, and I want, I want you to hold on because this convicted me, and it might get you too. Chief among these ways of, of showing self-righteousness is this, is this, the answer to the question, how are you? I'm just, I'm just tired. You tracking with me? I'm just, I'm just tired. There's, we mean so much by that phrase, guys. If, if you evaluate your heart or what, pe- what someone's saying, what someone means when they say they're saying, I'm busy, work is hectic, these kids are a handful, and guys, these things are okay. It's okay to be busy. It's okay for the kids to be a handful. I know, right? I get that. They're a handful sometimes. Work is stressful sometimes. All the time, though? It's a life change. If it's like that all the time, there's something wrong. But what we're trying to do here when we answer that question, how are you with, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just tired, you know, we're just, just busy, we're just busy. We want to look busier than we really are. I, I want to I look like my schedule is more full than it really is, like my level of stress is a little bit higher than yours, like I'm more important or more necessary at work. Like, just fill in the blank for yourself, okay? I can't, there's a million ways you could be doing this. Let the Holy Spirit convict you of this, but just fill in the blank. It, it's the thing that we do or say that's intended to show other people how hard we're working and how much they should respect us for it. It's self-righteous hypocrisy. I'm, I'm not preaching to you guys. I'm preaching to us. Like this, this, I'm saying this because it applies to me. I do this. I do this thing where I want to I justify myself, right? But it's self-righteous hypocrisy because, because of this. Because it's trying to make my need for a Savior less apparent. I, like, I'm sufficient. I got a lot going on, so I'm important. That's what I'm saying. But I'm not. I'm not important. I'm not enough. And I am deceiving myself more than I'm deceiving any of you guys when I'm doing this. Right? You just know. You guys know when, other, when someone's doing that to you. You're like, you're not that busy. Quit being like that. Like, I, know what you, I know what you're up to. You know. So we're deceiving ourselves. And why? Why do we do that? The arms of the Savior are open now to you, where you stand, right? We don't, have, we don't have to put on the face. Who are we fooling? We're not even fooling other people. Do we think we're fooling God? We're not. The truth is that we are more sinful than we can imagine, but we are more loved than we could hope for. And we can just rest. We don't have to put on the face. We don't have to do the hypocritical thing. And that's why Jesus focused in on this hypocrisy thing, because he realized it's the first ailment of a kingdom dweller that will, that will rip, them, rip them from the truth of the kingdom. That I came to you broken, Jesus says. I came to you right where you were. Why do you feel the need to justify yourself from here? Like, I know where you were. And so this hypocrisy, it, it ties really, really neatly into this other thing that Jesus just hints at. He actually takes it for granted in the way that he presents this. If you look at verse 25, we're skipping ahead. We're going to come back to 19 through 24. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. It's almost like Jesus, like, he knows we're, we're starting to feel anxious just hearing what he's saying. So he's like, I'm going to go ahead and cut, just, just cut this one off at the bud here. Just like, don't be anxious about the things that I'm saying. So how does this tie to hypocrisy? Well, so the term hip, hip, hypocrite, right? It's, it's a Greek word, right? 
And its origins are actually in the Greek theater, which is cool. That's the way Matthew uses it, the way, these, the, way the New Testament uses it. Its origins are in the Greek theater, and, and what it refers to is like a character in the play. The translation is something like, like one who answers back to the chorus. I couldn't really tie that back in to exactly what that means because I've never been to a lot of Greek plays in the first century of Palestine. But it's an assumed character, right? It's a character in a play played by someone who's not that person in real life. It's an assumed character. It's, and in Greek plays, it's someone who would be wearing a mask, right? I'm trying to pretend to be someone that I'm not. Hypocrisy. There it is. So how does this tie to anxiety or anxiousness? We become anxious when we play the hypocrite because we are constantly fearful of being found out to be the frauds that we really are. There's your anxiety right there. In the absence of the validation that comes from knowing God rightly because we are separated from him in unrepentant sin, unrepentant hearts, we seek validation from our fellow man. These are so closely intertwined. So the hypocrite must form, the best way I could think about it, was he must form this kind of like cocoon around himself, right? To insulate, insulate himself from the reality of, the, of his conflict with God. Like reality points to the fact that the creator is judging you because you don't measure up. We convince ourselves that, that if I can get people to like me and approve of me, even admire me or be jealous of me, I'll even take jealousy then I will have some value. That's what we're trying to trick ourselves and other people into believing. We are seeking comfort in something that can't comfort us, and so we get anxious in our hypocrisy. In fact, we're seeking comfort in everything at all times, stemming chronically from this global problem, the global reality of living in a fallen world. I read two books. I read some weird books, just like in off-seasons, right? So, so I, <laughs> I read two books, kind of back-to-back, by this guy named Joe Navarro. He was an FBI agent. For like 30 years. And he focused in like intelligence gathering and interrogation. And he became an expert in body language. And so he wrote two books. The first one was called uh, What Everybody is Saying. Nice pun. Uh, and then he's called, and the other one is The Dictionary of Body Language. And they're really cool books. They're really, they're really short books. They're easy reads. And it's just about body language and, and what body language reveals and why we do what we do with our bodies, like when we're lying or when we're uncomfortable. And he makes some really secular dude, right? This is a secular book just talking about body language. I was getting, stern, you know, getting knowledge about body language so I know who's lying to me. So just not really. I don't think I took that away from it. His, his thesis is here, his main, his main points that he's making here is that every conscious bit of body language that kind of gives away, like that, that interrogators look for, it comes back to this need to be comforted, right? We're trying to comfort ourselves. So unconsciously when... When I'm talking to you and I, and I cross my arms or I kind of lean away from you or like when, like when I'm preaching, I put my foot up here, right? Or if I'm talking, I spin my ring, you know? You, you guys know, you, you notice things and you know you do these things. We're doing it because we're looking for peace in our interactions when we feel uncomfortable, whether we're lying or we're just not sure what's going on or, or we're nervous. We're looking for peace because we kind of want to slip away from the reality that things aren't quite the way I want them to be. And I suspect we do the same thing with our spiritual discomfort which is our reality as sinners. We try and kind of body language our way out of like the reality that, man, I don't measure up to God's standard, right? We are at war. We are at war within ourselves because we are at war with God's standard and God himself. I think, I think we've referenced Romans 8 uh, every week so far, so I don't want to break that trend. Romans 8, 6 through 8 says this, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, and indeed it cannot. 
those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Church, we know, Romans 1 tells us, we know that we don't measure up. But rather than face that truth of our inadequacy before God and people, we choose to play this part in a show that we've written right, and produced on how great we really are. That's what it is. That's the hypocrisy, which leads to the anxiety. So we avoid the reality by creating our own reality where we are the king and we're seeking to, to create a kingdom of approval from confirmation and success based on our relationships with others and not on our relationship with God. And so we take the forms and the functions of God's word and his commands, right? And we, and we apply them. This is the best thing I can think of was, was like a makeup, right? We apply them like a makeup over this blemished exterior, so that we have the look of someone who is good and accepted by God, but not the heart and certainly not the assurance of actually knowing God. This then is the source of the anxiety that Jesus rebukes. This uncomfortable battle we rage with, that we wage within ourselves, fearing that we're not enough because we know that we really aren't enough. If you're not discouraged enough, let me, let me just keep going for a few more minutes. <laughs> what this shows us, what does this show us? It shows us that we've forgotten who God really is, right? We've forgotten the other, the other half of the gospel because I was telling Sammy this week, I think back to a phrase, a very formative summer in my life where, where I was kind of battling some spiritual things out. I came back and, and saw some friends at college of which Sammy was still a friend at the time and was kind of sharing with, it with a group. They were like, they're like, how was your summer? I was like, man, it was the best kind of bad. It's like the Lord just wrecked me. I spent some time with some older guys who discipled me and, and showed me sin in my life and it, and it wrecked me, Right? It, it, was, it was a good kind of wrecked, right? Because, because the gospel is both good news, it, it's bad news first, that you're a sinner, that you're lost, that you have no hope in yourself or in this world. But then the best news comes right after it, that Jesus has taken care of your inadequacy by his blood, by his life and his blood and his resurrection. He has promised you life. That's the, that's the bad news and the good news juxtaposed right together. And so that's not... The picture that, that Jesus is painting here is, is similar to that, right? We forget who God really is. That we, we go back to that, the lie in the garden. Like the lie that Satan told in the garden as a snake. He, he, says, he says to Adam and Eve, and I love thinking, this, this kind of comes from Sinclair Ferguson's book. It's, it's a, a tangent off of that. He says that God didn't really make this garden for you, is, is the lie that Satan's telling Adam and Eve. He didn't really make this garden for you. It's, it's really for him, right? He, he wants you not to be buddies with him. He wants you as slaves, right? He doesn't want you to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden because you'll see it's really all about him. And you won't be able to be who you really want to be unless you get out from underneath the burden of this law and all these rules. That's the lie Satan tells that we believe and it takes God from a father to a slave master. And that changes our response to God's word and God's law and our response to God himself. This is not the picture of the kingdom that Jesus is painting for us, though. That's not the picture at all. Not God as a slave master. And this misunderstanding that we have about who God really is creates this terrible anxiety about daily life, which then generates these three really troublesome symptoms that Jesus outlines for us in 19 through 24. And so that's what I want to look at here before, before we wrap up. So starting in verse 19, Jesus describes the symptoms of these sicknesses of, of anxiety and, and, and hypocrisy that can steal you away from the kingdom. Jesus says this, verse 19, verses 19 and, uh, through 21, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, 
where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is is a simple truth. You've heard this expounded probably before if you've ever been in church. Jesus is is describing for us, he's, he's saying that humans, as humans, we're often fooled into thinking that possessions equals position. If I have more stuff, I'll be better. I'll be more full. By my having more stuff, I become more valuable, like the stuff that I bought. But Jesus is contradicting that full stop, like no holds barred here. He's saying, on the contrary, the more treasure you accumulate here on earth, the more you have to lose, right? And that's exactly what you're going to do with that stuff, because it it doesn't come with you. Earth has a problem, is what Jesus is highlighting, right? Earth has this this really significant problem that you experience on a daily basis, is that everything erodes away, sometimes slow, sometimes fast, right? Whether it's batteries or your heart, like it all just, it eventually stops. And in many ways, this, this, is, this is like a, a little, I could, I could rant about this, right? And it's not because I'm not guilty of it, but because I just realize it about humans. That in many ways, the more stuff that we have, the more miserable we are. Because we have to find ways to protect that stuff and keep that stuff running and working. And so then we end up often wasting more resources on keeping our things than the things actually cost us. If you think I'm wrong, think of this booming industry called storage units. What? We have so much stuff that I can't keep all my stuff in my huge house with all stuff in it, so I have to go buy another place to put my stuff that I can't even use my stuff. What is that? Like, that's, that's this. It's like, where's my treasure? I don't know, but if I keep getting more stuff, I'll feel better about myself. So much stuff that I can't even put it all in this giant house that I have. I'm going to go get another little house and put some stuff in there too, and then I'll feel better about that. When we attempt to store up treasures and meaning and purpose in this life as a way to feel significant, we deny the greatest truth of all, the truth that you were created to extol, which is that God is the real treasure and that Christ is the real reward. That's why those two are diametrically opposed. Jesus says, where you put your treasure, that's exactly where your heart is going to follow. So any hope or meaning or reward that we store up for ourselves in this life is firewood, right? It's, it, that's, where it all, that's where it all goes. Jesus says, invest in something sound, right? This is Jesus' investment advice from Jesus, okay? Jesus says, don't you want something that is sure and guaranteed? So put your money in the coming kingdom, not in one that's passing away. Jesus says, don't, don't store it up here. And this is, this is what anxiety, this, this is why we have anxiety. So we're trying to make us fill ourselves up with stuff that can't fill us up, that's eventually just going to disappear. Verses 22 through 23, this is, this is uh, what we see, the symptom of what we see. And this is, this is tricky. L- just listen. So the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in, in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? This, I, I, this felt confusing to me at first. But then I was like, this is a really simple, this is a really simple analogy. Jesus is just saying, your eyes are like a window. Okay, and there might be some more depth here, but this is on the surface exactly what Jesus is saying. Your eye is like a window. What's a good window? It's big. It has no obstructions in front of it, right? And it faces the right direction, so it lets in lots of light. Good window. Inside, you can see around. Mission accomplished. If the window is not good, if it's small, if it faces the shadows and it's blocked out by a tree, no light gets in. No light is bad because you fall over stuff. So where we focus ourselves, 
where we point our eyes to what we point our eyes towards and where we where we kind of cut the holes in our worldview to look out into the world that determines my outlook right it determines what i become about it's just a simple question in response to these verses am i focused on christ what am i focused on what do i spend my time and effort and emotional energy on am i focused on christ or am i focusing on the things that christ might give me this is one option right like he might give me peace comfort health stability Am I pointing my eyes to the truth of God's word daily? Like, am I, am I in this book, right? Or am I just like doom-scrolling Facebook, just looking for something, something that will be fun, something that will make me chuckle, right? What, what am I pointing my eyes at? Because this is, this is the, the connection between the treasure and the, and the lamp of the body. Where, if where I put my treasure is where my heart goes, then where I put my eyes is where my mind goes. Those are the things I think about. That's what I put my effort towards. So what are you pointing at? What are you pointing your eyes at? What are you filling yourself with? If it's not Christ, what, you, then you can't argue with the outcomes. Final one here, who you serve. Right? This, is, this is the third symptom. Who you serve. Verse 24. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Broadly speaking, Jesus makes it about money, but he, he's speaking about, I think he's speaking about a broader truth here as well. There's an analogy here, and I hope, I hope that this doesn't land too hard on certain people, but I hope it does land hard on other people. Uh, I grew up in a family of divorce. Um, my parents divorced when I was really young, but I saw them uh, for most of my life until I was almost a teenager. Both of them, you know, shared custody. The hardest part of, of coming from a family of divorce is not the pressure is, is the pressure to be liked by both parents, if that makes sense. Not, not loved, like I never felt unloved by my parents, but I didn't, I didn't always feel liked, like I wasn't enjoyed. And so whether consciously or not, I'm, I'm not putting this on, on my parents, my mom specifically. Whether consciously or not, parents to kids of divorce often put pressure on their kids to feel about the divorced spouse the way they do, which is like, disappro- at best, it's disapproval, right? Like I kind of want you to share my feelings toward this other human. It's unfair. And a big part of my testimony is this drive that formed for me as a, as a young person, a young man, to mold myself into the person that both parents would like, even though they didn't like the two main influences in my life. Half of like one of them doesn't like the other, so like it's difficult. And so, so I tried to make myself when I was with one like a person they would like, and when I'm with the other, a person that they would like. And this became true, it, it, it fed its way into my friend groups as I got older, right? I just, I just, I'll just be whatever I need to be to be liked, it doesn't matter, I just, it, it wrecked me, guys. It wrecked me, and it was exhausting. It almost killed me. What I realized is I couldn't serve more than one master, right? And, and not until I believed the gospel, not until I believed the gospel and, and, and found the peace in the abiding acceptance of Christ, acceptance of Christ where there's no pretense, nothing to hide, where Jesus knows everything, I, I, I couldn't be whole. Christ gave that to me. He freed me from that. Realizing I couldn't serve both of them. Following Jesus is just confession, repentance, and faith in the Savior who died for me. Right? It frees me from that. I can't serve two masters. It's a very concrete example for me in my life. And Jesus says unequivocally that if you're not sold out, this, this is what Jesus is getting at, right? If you're not sold out for his kingdom, you're not a part of it. So he kind of gives you two options. He says, you can love the things of the world, but not God. Or you can love the things of God, but not the world. 
Because both of them require all of you. Right? There's, there's, no, there's no compromise. They will take everything from you, from the, from the other half of you that wants the other thing. They both require complete devotion. So as long as we try to straddle that fence between the two, you will be miserable and you will die and you will be a fool in this life and you will be judged in the next life and condemned. And for what? For what? Think about it. What, for what? For approval or acceptance? Some dollar bills? Losing a friend? What will they think of me? For what? The hypocrisy and anxious heart create a storm that robs you of joy and steals eternity. It's not a fair trade. It'll take more than you, than you bargained for. And so this leads to Jesus' final point, the antidote. So those are the symptoms. This is the antidote. It's really, it's really simple what Jesus says when he says, he says do not be anxious, right? So, so let's read. I'm, I'm going to read 25 through 33. So the, the antidote is trust, right? It says do not be anxious about your body. So trust that God will provide for your body. Jesus says this. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Just listen to Jesus' words there. I don't know if you've ever seen this skit. I don't actually know what. It might be from Mad TV, but it's Bob Newhart. I don't know if you've seen the movie Elf. Okay, he's Papa Elf. He's like Will Ferrell's dad. That's Bob Newhart. Okay, he's a comedian. I like comedy. And he has this skit. I don't know when it's from. It's probably like early 90s. But he plays, a, um, he plays like a counselor or like maybe like a psychologist. And this lady comes into his office and she confesses that like she has a terrible fear of like being locked in a box and buried. Like she's really claustrophobic. And he's like, okay, I think I can help you with this. Um, I'm going to say to you two words and, and you can write them down or not. And she's like, oh, just two words. He's like, yep, yep. Um, I'm going to say the words to you, and then I think it should help you. She goes, okay. And he goes, stop it. She's like, what? He's like, stop it. Like, don't do that anymore. Like, your problem is you're doing this thing. Don't do it. This is what Jesus is saying. It's not quite, but he's pretty close. He's saying, look at reality, guys. Like, you're, you're worried about things that God provides to you. He gives you ways to earn a living and take care of yourself. And the whole time that people that hate him and deny him are sleeping, he's just forcing air down their lungs. And they wake up worried about, oh, oh what am I gonna, how am I going to buy food today? Like, he's saying, look around you. See that God even provides for idolaters and pagans and people who hate him. And he, and he still keeps them alive. Ferguson Sinclair says, if, he gives the analogy, if, if someone from another universe were to step off onto our planet, they would very quickly conclude that the object of our worship is ourselves by how much effort we put into food and drink and clothes and a place to sleep. Because we're so worried about what we put into and onto and over our bodies that we can't fathom for some reason that God will give us what we need. Like he just won't. And yet you woke up this morning after all night not thinking about staying alive, you woke up. 
because God kept you alive. And perhaps you're thinking, and, and, and I think this is valid too, you're thinking, well, Michael, people die of hunger and, and thirst all the time. Where is God then? It's a pretty big question. Um, I can't answer it in full today, but just to that simple objection, that, that I mean, that's true, right? And so is Jesus not aware of that? I think Jesus is probably more aware of that than we are. The realities of first century Palestine, right? The threat of, of dying or having everything stolen is pretty real. But I wonder if more people were united under the banner of Christ and his lordship, if that would be the case, if so many people would, would, would die of hunger and not have what they need. This isn't a plea for social justice here. It's just to think about this. It, within the body of the church, right, who among us, among these, the covenanted members here, right, the, your brothers and sisters in Christ at Poplar Spring, who would you withhold food and water from if they needed it? And, and not because you're a good person, but because you know that Christ expects that of you. Just think about that. That's the power of the church, right? That's the power of what Christ is doing amongst us, right? This is a, a means by which God chooses to provide for us. That's just one example. But secondarily, and I think maybe even more importantly, Jesus points us to, to a truth here that maybe there's a fate worse than starving or thirsting. Like we shouldn't be as worried about those things because there's something bigger and more important happening that you're not thinking about while you're thinking about food and water, Maybe Jesus is pointing us to a reality in the coming kingdom that is so good and perfect that when Paul says these words in Philippians, he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain, that maybe Paul really means that. Wouldn't that be challenging? Romans 8, 31 through 32, that's two Romans 8 references in one sermon. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How can you say to God, who has spared no expense, even his own son, that you don't trust him to provide? How has he not provided for you, friend? Because make no mistake, that's exactly what we do every time we get anxious about money, or school, or the kids, or what my neighbor thinks, or coronavirus. That's what we're saying. God might not come through this time. And Christ means to show you that you have nothing to lose in this life that is not already lost if you are not firmly in his grip. That's what Jesus is pointing to. The final point here, do not be anxious about your soul. Trust that Jesus is going to provide for your soul, verses 33 and 34. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be added. All these things meaning all the stuff that we're worried about, right? He's telling us that God provides for the physical needs of all people equally, right? The comment about the Gentiles, they know they need these things, and God gives them to them. And go back to verse to 545, where he said, Jesus says, he makes, God makes the rain fall on the just and the unjust alike. That God is in the business of giving you what you need to live, right? That's just a, like, we all get that. You show up, you get that. That's a thing. Like, look at the earth. It's meant for you to survive on. But for one who would submit to Jesus as king, this is the difference between creation and kingdom dwellers, is the one who would submit to Jesus as king and become a born-again kingdom dweller, God has provided uniquely for you. Not physically, necessarily, but definitely spiritually. 
For those who would seek Christ as their righteousness, who would leave the the charade of self-righteousness behind, and who reject the anxious worrying of trusting in yourself, right, instead of the Lord, Jesus promises to provide for your greatest need. And our problem is not that we've, we've forgotten one need, but that we've made other needs more important than the only need, which is our spiritual need, our spiritual poverty, which is where Jesus started this whole thing, that you're spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus isn't going, isn't going to meet your needs. He's already met them. Jesus isn't going to meet your needs. Right? We think about, oh, I have my needs for tomorrow. Jesus isn't going to meet your needs. He already met them. He met them thousands of years ago on a cross and through the resurrection proved that he would make good on that promise. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28 through 33, this is a long, a long scripture. I just want you to just listen to just Jesus' words in Matthew 10. It says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Church, your greatest need is not a thing or a situation, but a person, a Savior. And you must be united to that Savior Jesus in faith if you wish to have that deep chasm between you and God filled in and paved over. No matter where you are today, this is, this, this is the invitation like every Sunday, no matter where you are today, no matter what's going on, no matter what you are worried about, stop it. Stop it. Pause right now and look to Christ in your heart. Close your eyes. Whatever you got to do, look to Christ as your all-sufficiency in all things, but primarily your deep, deep spiritual need for reconciliation with God. Your greatest concern should be, should be eternity and where you will spend it And guess what? The good news is that Jesus has cleared and smoothed and graded and paved a way for you into the kingdom. If you will walk to him, friend, will you do that? Will that be your response? That's the gospel. That's his extension to you today and every day. Every morning you wake up with breath in your lungs. God has provided for you through the night so that you can wake up and confess, God, you are good and I desperately need you and I cling to Christ as my soul's sufficiency. That's our cry, church. Let's pray together.